Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, and of course, you've arrived at the Unexpected Cosmology. I'm going to get straight to it tonight. Uh, I already did my uh, warm-up pep talk, warmed up the crowd, got the laugh track going um, already tonight, and we had our opening prayer. So here we are. This is the Hidden Wilderness and Satan. As I was telling the group before we started, uh, I love edemic literature. And by edemic literature, what that means is it's it's referring to a genre of books like First and Second Adam and Eve is a, is a great um, one. My favorite is the Gospel of Nicodemus. Uh, you have uh, the Gospel of uh, Bartholomew, a few others like that. And this, what we're going to cover tonight is a book that I discovered, uh, which I'll be talking about in my paper. And it is... The Crossroads of Edemic Literature Meets the Hidden Wilderness. And I am so amped for this. I love it. Here it is, The Hidden Wilderness and Satan. We're on page 51 if you need to figure out where we're at. Prayer is important, but be specific about it. Yahushua asked the sun to stand still in the sky in Yahushua 10.13, and it did. That would be Joshua. Globies claim it was the spin of the earth rather than the sun, which came to a standstill. But that is not what Yahushua prayed for, and certainly not what the text says. Though we might as well throw physics out the window either way. Yahuwah gives wisdom to those who ask. It goes without saying that the request must be desired, as well as demonstrated in how we live our lives. Those who seek truth, desiring truth at all costs, will surely find it. Very few uh, will, though. There are too many distractions, and in the case of the hidden wilderness, the Globies have convinced themselves they're winning the argument. Speaking of prayers, somebody named Zosimus wanted to see the hidden wilderness with his own eyes. For 40 years, he ate no bread, drank no wine, and removed himself from the face of men, petitioning his request all the while. Yahuwah answered him, what does your prayer life look like? The narrative of Zosimus is another rare gem of a book which I've recently discovered. Seriously, I had absolutely no clue what it was about when I dug it up out of the obscurity, really the obscurity bin, and decided to give it a try. What, uh, excuse me, what I have come to learn of its backstory is that it was immensely popular during the Middle Ages, being translated into Syriac, Arabic, Giez, Armenian, Georgian, and Slavonic. The book is dated to the whereabouts of the 5th century, according to the official narrative, though it has sometimes been classified as Old Testament pseudopigrapha. And the scholars apparently cannot decide whether it is Jewish or Christian in origin. I really like that part. Zosimus immediately parts ways with the other hidden wilderness narratives that we've gone over in that he is never once tasked with a mariner's voyage. An angel of Yahuwah simply appears before him claiming that Elohim has heard his petition and that he has arrived to carry him there. Within moments, Zosimus is whisked away and set before an unpassable river, which we have already explored with St. Brendan. We probably went over that a couple months ago. This is also where Zosimus parts way with the others. He is given passage where nobody else could. 
The way this happens is Zosimus is able to perceive a wall of cloud stretching forth from the waters to, to the heaven. It is a mist, a thick and impenetrable one, perhaps not so dissimilar from the cloud that kept Pharaoh out of Yasharil's camp when they stood with their backs to the Red Sea. Others could not see the barrier, but Zosimus could. And what does that remind you of? The Lost World movies, for one. I'll speak for myself, I suppose, but that is what I am reminded of. The mist or the cloud or the storm wall is a repeated theme in these modern Lost World narratives. The narrative of Zosimos isn't a modern one, though. I'm giving you the cliff notes, and really, you should read it for yourself. It is in the cloud that a voice speaks to him, and this is what it says. Zosimus, man of Elohim, through me no bird passes out of this world, nor breath of wind, nor the sun itself, nor can the tempter in this world pass through me. The narrative of Zosimus chapter 2. So just so you guys get caught up here, because I'm, as I'm reading this now, I feel like maybe people are already uh, dislodged from this. You have this guy named Zosimus. As I explained, he, he's praying for 40 years of his life that he can go to the hidden wilderness, that he could see it for himself. And Yahuwah answers the request. He brings an angel. He sets them here uh, at the edge of it. And uh, it's the same thing as all the rest. It should be total darkness, but there's light. There's no sun. And there's this thick uh, mist-like cloud that is impassable, that it's keeping people from going in. The sun, we already know, does not reach the hidden wilderness on its present circuit. It is the, it is the other tidbit which I was not aware of. Hasatan is incapable of penetrating the wall. Once again, what does that remind you of? The modern Lost World narratives are intent on building fences to keep the monster in, when in fact the total opposite is true. The fence is built to keep the monster out. I will go more into this in the pages ahead, and when I do, you will finally understand why the hidden wilderness was disclosed from the world. One might argue whether or not Satan was incapable of conquering the Blessed Land, or if his kingdom of darkness only inherited the area within the sun's circuit to begin with. What is evident is that the wilderness had to remain concealed so long as Satan was on the loose. That means the same plot of land was disclosed, its shroud lifted, and its gates opened to the public once Satan was locked in the abyss. By that very logic, the same swath of land would be concealed again upon his release. The point of the barrier was always to keep another paradise temptation from happening again. As I was saying, the Zosimus narrative parts ways with the others in that two trees grow up out of the ground and bend over so as to form a bridge, thereby allowing him passage, uh, Zosimus. I'm, I'm really just scanning through this, so we don't have to read the whole book. Uh, while also showing his worth. The fact that these two trees allow him to pass over shows that he is worthy to pass through the mist. Other explorers have claimed to commune with an inhabit inhabitant of the land from one side of the river to the other while being forbidden to cross. There are multiple hidden wilderness tales that go the same, same route. It was the same way with St. Brendan um, and others. They, you know, they would go up to this river. They couldn't go any further. And, of course, not so with Zosimus. I'm sure there are, many, there are many who have already shrugged the idea of a cave dweller being deemed worthy after praying and fasting for 40 years. And if so, then 
Is that how you see yourself, as worthy? How is repentance treating you? I will remind my reader of the number 40. It's totally biblical. Yasharel sent 12 spies into Canaan for 40 days, who in turn gave an evil report regarding the giants, thereby resulting in 40 years of wilderness wandering. Yasharel was tormented by the giant Goliath for 40 days, and only David stepped up to the challenge, thereby granting him 40 years as Yasharel's king. Yahushua was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness and overcame that challenge as well. I'm thinking Yahuwah only granted Zosimus passage because he had passed the test and knew he would not arrive to tempt anyone towards transgression. Immediately after crossing over the seemingly impenetrable river, the big Z here, Zosimus does meet someone and immediately thinks the man to be void of clothing. He isn't naked, though. You might say it's a bit of a blunder on his part because the local inhabitant is able to identify him as an outsider by his remark. This is what it says in chapter 5. And having ended this, this discourse, the man, he's speaking to this person he meets on the other side of the river. The man spoke again, Hast thou come hither out of the vanity of the world? I said to him, Wherefore art thou, why are you naked? And he said, How knows that I am naked? Thou wearest skins of cattle of the earth that decay together with the body. But look up to the height of heaven and behold of what nature my clothing is. And looking up into the heaven, I saw his face as the face of an angel and his clothing as lightning, which passes from the east to the west. And I was greatly afraid, thinking that it was the son of Elohim and trembled, falling upon the ground. Realizing how the local wasn't naked as he had once perceived, Zosimus then conf conf uh, confused him as being the son of Elohim, which is to say Hamashiach. He certainly wasn't, but the confusion is understood. I mean, he didn't have anything else to base his uh, analysis on, any other framework. And what does his clothing attire remind you of? I will speak for myself again when saying Adam and his woman Chua. They weren't naked in the garden, despite the insistence of children's church and the erotica illustrations, which our teachers in, uh, indoctrinated us with. You know what I'm talking about. Turns out they were clothed, Adam and Chua, or Eve, just not in animal skins. That change of wardrobe happened after their transgression because the glory had been removed from them. It says so right here in the Genesis Targum. You guys are all familiar with this. And the eyes of both were enlightened, and they knew that they were naked, divested of the purple robe in which they had been created. And they saw the sight of their shame and sued to themselves leaves of figs and made to them uh, censures. You should be asking yourself why Adam and Chua suddenly woke up to the fact that they were inhabiting an Italian nudie painting. Nobody has a reasonable answer to this one. Were they too stupid prior to feel the breeze on their bum or notice the strong emphasis on skin tones? How is it possible that the sight of their nakedness was a point of praise one moment and disgrace, and disgrace the next? Being set apart is not the same thing as being morally ambiguous. The simplest answer is most often correct, because they had previously worn clothes until the moment when they didn't. The serpent had entered the garden and convinced them to do something naughty, which is why he wasn't allowed into the hidden wilderness. You will tell me that Genesis 2.25 and the Hebrew Masoretic frames a picture in which they were naked and unashamed. I just went over this material uh, about a couple months ago. Some of you guys might be familiar with this. Repeating this. 
some of you, regardless of me going over this <laughs> out there on YouTube land or wherever, will tell me that Genesis 2.25, because you're flipping open your Bibles right now in the Hebrew Masoretic, frames a picture in which they were naked and unashamed. But that is only to contrast when, a little later on, they were naked and ashamed. It is why the verse prior states, uh, which one am I going to read from? Uh, let's read from the Masoretic. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall the man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his woman. And they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his woman, and were not ashamed. And of course, the, you can see there in the Targum, it says, verse 25, and both of them were wise, Adam and his wife, but they were not faithful or truthful in their glory. It says in the Hebrew Masoretic that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed together, but only after telling us a man would leave his father and mother to cleave unto a woman so as to become one flesh. The first quip is always taken as sexual, the part about becoming one flesh, but then we are immediately prodded to think about their nakedness together in the garden and not be ashamed. Because nakedness apparently had nothing to do with sex until it did. Are you following that line of logic? I'm not. The typical Christian answer seems to suggest the notion that humanity was somehow intended as a nudist colony and that everyone was wanted to walk around showing off their private business until they realized the lifestyle was evil rather than good via forbidden fruit, which is the most ridiculous explanation ever when you stop to think about it. Are we expected to believe snug-fitting underwear is the result of sin and that Adam preferred the chaotic sway of a pendulum. Context is everything. Tell me, were the father and mother whom the young man left expected to be naked as well? All three of them together? And what about when the father and mother visit the son and his wife? Would they all still chat it up in the nude? Remember now that the command that they become one flesh is uh, they leave their father and mother before the sin. And then there is the matter of the eventual population growth. Was a man expected to find his naked wife alluring, but none of the other thousand naked women, many of whom weren't even married yet? Is that how sexuality works? Help me understand this. How far was this open parade uh, naked trade supposed to last before somebody lusted after another man's naked wife? The command has been purposely confused when it couldn't be any more obvious. A man and his woman feel no shame when they take their clothes off together, becoming one flesh. That is, make a child. The child is the one flesh being spoken of and a result of their unashamed nakedness. If we follow through with what they were instructed to, then we will become an imitators of the Creator without shame. Adam and Shua felt shame, though. When was the last time that you ate fruit naked in public and then felt shame afterwards, but only after eating the fruits? Nakedness within the shared bed of a man and a woman is not a shame. I have to keep repeating myself just to make this clear so there's no misunderstandings. However, when viewed by others, nakedness is a sin. It says so right here. The nakedness of your father's woman shall you not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. Leviticus 18.8. Even assuming Adam and Shua inhabited the world alone, you figure the subject of clothing would eventually come up once the children came along and desired wives of their own. How about Cain or Havel's mother-in-law? Were they permitted to look upon her nakedness as well? Read Beersheath 2.24 again. The instruction to become one flesh predates Adam and Shua's rebellion. Draperies were always hung from the cloth rack, specifically purple robes. That is because they were intended to be vested high priests over humanity and all of creation. 
it's passages such as this one. And it's also, I should mention the purple is really fascinating. Just last week, we talked about the, um, the, the, the purple light that emanated from the Shroud of Turin when, when the image was imprinted on it. And that's, that's the, I think that's speaking of the purple robe. And to a mortal, it might look like nakedness, um, but to, the, to those who are immortal, who are vested in the light of uh, eternity, uh, it's, it's like a purple, I think that's what it means by the purple robes. It's like this, this pure light that we'll be wearing. That is because they were intended to be vested high priests over humanity and all of creation, as I just mentioned. It's passages such as this one where you can see why the inhabit, why the inhabitant of the hidden wilderness was so insulted. Zosimus was ignorant and thought he saw the man's funny business on the mere basis that he wasn't wearing the clothes of a mortal. You see, he made the same mistake as so many Sunday school teachers and seminary students. Continuing. Uh, this is still in chapter five of the narrative. And giving me his hand, he raised me up, saying, Arise, I also am one of the blessed. Come with me, that I may lead thee to the elders. And laying hold of my hand, he walked about with me and led me toward a certain crowd. And there were in that crowd elders like sons of Elohim. That's interesting. And the young men were standing beside the elders. And as I came near to them, they said, This man has come hither out of the vanity of the world. Come, let us beseech Yahuwah, and he will reveal to us this mystery. Surely the end is not at hand, that the man of vanity is come hither. Then they arose and besought Yahuwah with one accord, and behold, two angels came down from heaven and said, Fear not the man, for Elohim has sent him, that he may remain seven days and learn your ways of life. And then he shall go forth and depart to his own place. The angels of Elohim, having said this, ascended into heaven before our eyes. So Seamus was partially correct in identifying the first inhabitant of the land with the son of Elohim. They were all sons of Elohim. And what does that remind you of? Some of you will claim the watchers in Genesis 6 are being referred to, but I'm not. Had you said the sons of Elohim, then I would be in agreement. The Watcher's incursion, as told to us in Enoch, in eric contrast with the sons of Elohim in Genesis 6, are two separate, though admittedly, interlocked events. Now, pay attention to what I'm saying, because just about everyone is going to be furious with me with this, because uh, the, the Genesis 6 conspiracy crowd has spent the last three decades trying to convince everyone that the sons of God or the sons of Elohim in Genesis 6 are the watchers. And I'm saying that they're not, that they are the watchers and the sons of Elohim are two different events going on. All right. And again, just so we're clear, I am full support of the Enoch narrative. I'm just saying it's not the same one as what Moses writes about. The Watcher's incursion, as told to us in Enoch, in errant contrast with the sons of Elohim in Genesis 6, are two separate, though admittedly, interlocked events. Try not to confuse them. I won't repeat myself in every last detail here. I have shown elsewhere, and to my own satisfaction, that the Watchers had already committed their wicked deeds by the time Moshe wrote about the sons of Elohim coming down to take the daughters of men. I can understand the mix-up. But then look at how it's written for us in the Aramaic Targum. So Genesis 6 in the Aramaic Targum. And it was when the sons of men began to multiply upon the face of the earth 
and fair daughters were born to them. And the sons of the great saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and painted and curled, walking with revelation of the flesh and with imaginations of wickedness, that they took them wise of all who pleased them. And Yahuwah said by his word, all the generations of the wicked which are to rise shall not be purged after the order of the judgments of the generation of the deluge, which shall be destroyed and exterminated from the midst of the world. Have I not imparted my Ruach HaKadosh to them, or placed my Ruach HaKadosh in them, that they may work good works? And behold, their works are wicked. Behold, I will give them a prolongment of a hundred and twenty years, that they may work repentance and not perish. Sam Jaza and Uziel, who fell from heaven, were on the earth in those days, and also after the sons of the great had gone in with the daughters of men, they bare to them. And these are they who are called men who are of the world, men of names. So blink and you'll miss it. Sam Jaza or Shimi Aza and Uziel had already fallen from heaven and were on the earth in those days. That event is told to us through the Watcher's account in Enoch. But it had already happened when these sons of the great saw the daughters of men in Genesis 6. Also, their faces had already been painted, that of the women. Without going into the entire his story of this event, we know the Watchers introduced makeup to the ladies. That's your second clue. Oh, fine, how about I just show you? So this is going to come from chapter 8 of Enoch. Moreover, Azazel taught men to make swords, knives, shields, breastplates, and fabrication of mirrors, and the workmanship of bracelets and ornaments, the use of paint, the beautifying of the eyebrows, stones of every valuable and select kind, and all sorts of dyes, so that the world became altered, and piety increased, fornication multiplies, and they transgressed and corrupted all their ways. Azazel, who is Satan, the serpent from the garden, taught the use of paint and the beautifying of eyebrows during the Watcher's incursion. That tells us it was before the sons of Elohim chanced to look down from their abode and find attraction in them. You could say the sons of Elohim followed in the footsteps of the Watchers, but they are not the same. Understanding all of this, not only the order of events, but the geographical landmark being spoken about is important, I think, to the hidden wilderness narrative. What do they teach now in schools? I probably say that too often, but it's a funny line. The sons of Elohim were the sons of, uh, were the sons of Seth in this situation. And look how they're described for us. But because of their own purity, they were named children of Elohim. And they were with Elohim instead of the host of angels who fell. For they continued in praises to Elohim and in singing psalms unto him in their cave the cave of treasures. And this comes from second Adam and Shua or second Adam and Eve 11, four. They were named the children of Elohim because of their purity. We haven't gotten there quite yet, but the same could be said for the children inhabiting the hidden wilderness. When Zosimus visited, I probably should have explained that earlier. The thousand year reign of Messiah hadn't happened yet. Supposing there were resurrected saints to be found. Zosimus never encountered them. Those whom he did interact with were mortals, just like him. You'll see what I mean in a little while. It needs to be understood that the residents only became the children of Elohim because of their virtuous lifestyle on both occasions. So you can imagine why being on guard would be absolutely necessary. The sons of Elohim 
uh, on uh, in the hidden wilderness in this narrative, we're capable of falling from grace, if you want to use that term, like everyone else. And of course, I did use that term. I don't know if I like that term anymore, falling from grace. That's a good one. I'll stick with it. I'll stick with it. The hidden wilderness is another retelling of the mountain of worship, a modern one. At least it was modern in his day. I wish you could take my word on this, but some of you may not even know what the mountain of worship is. And so I realize these details need ironed out. The mountain of worship was the geographical landscape where Adam and Chua, as well as their children, resided after their fall from paradise. Consider the following passages. And Yahuwah Elohim took the man from the mountain of worship, where he had been created, and made him dwell in the Garden of Eden to do service in Torah and to keep its commandments, Beersheath 2.15 from the Targum. Well, chapter 3.23 from the Targum says this, And Yahuwah Elohim removed from him from the Garden of Eden, and he went and dwelt on Mount Moriah to cultivate the ground from which he had been created. Mount Moriah and the Mountain of Worship are the same location. The breadcrumb trail is easily followed. I have already shown you where to look in Genesis 2.15 and 3.23. Adam was created there only to be placed in the garden, but then returned to the acreage of his origin after the disastrous serpent episode. Confused? I thought not. And as you will know, Moriah is an obvious reference to Zion, location of the Temple Mount. I have put a lot of thought into this, and I'm convinced that the mountain of worship was much larger than the walled city of Yerushalayim. A mountain range would be more likely. From this 3D map, you can see how the land of their habitation would not only cover the hills surrounding Yerushalayim, but also Bethlehem and as far south as Hebron. I'm thinking that's ample space for the handful of individuals who wanted to serve Yahuwah, living off the wild fruit of the land. The sons of Cain were not welcome there. By the way, this is all review from my covering the topic in other areas. I've been over this so many times. But I, I've realized I've got to really cover all my bases over and over and over again because, you know, there's always that person who drops into the podcast or the YouTube or whatever and thinks I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm repeating this information because it is understand, important in understanding the Zosimus side of things. The sons of Cain were probably building coastal cities and residing all along the Yarden Valley and camping up to the very skirt of the mountain. In fact, the sons of Cain did everything in their power to provoke the sons of Seth to come down to them. The event is well documented in 2nd Adam and Chua, and I am about to show you after I drink some more coffee. Then sin increased among them. This is talking about the sons of Cain and increased greatly, greatly among them until a man married his own sister or daughter or mother and others or the daughter of his father's sister so that there was no more distinction of relationship. That's almost eerie that, you know, the family is being destroyed today again. Huh, I didn't even think of that. And they no longer knew what is iniquity, but did wickedly, and the earth was defiled with sin. And they angered Elohim, the judge who had created them. But Ganun gathered together companies upon companies. Uh, this is one of the sons of Cain that played on horns and all the other instruments we have already mentioned at the foot of the holy mountain. And they did so in order that the children of Seth who were on the holy mountain should hear it. I think this is such an eerie picture. 
if you can imagine yourself up on a mountain and you could hear the instruments down there being blown and played just to get your attention. It might have been a rock concert for all we know. But when the children of Seth heard the noise, they wondered and came by companies and stood on the top of the mountain to look at those below. And they did thus a whole year. Sounds like a terrible camping trip to me. You know when you go to the perfect place in the woods and there's that jerk of a neighbor who pulls up next to you and feels that you want to hear his terrible 90s rock music or whatever, like amplified all the way up? When at the end of the year, uh, Ginen saw that they were being won over to him little by little. So they're coming down the mountain, the, the, sons, of, uh, the sons of Elohim. Satan entered into him and taught him to make dyeing stuffs for garments of diverse patterns and made him understand how to dye crimson and purple and whatnot. And the sons of Cain, who wrought all this and shone in beauty and gorgeous apparel, gathered together at the foot of the mountain in splendor with horns and gorgeous dresses and horse races, committing all manner of abominations. Meanwhile, the children of Seth, who were on the holy mountain, prayed and praised Elohim in the place of the host of angels who had fallen. Wherefore, it, that's really interesting. They're like replacing these angels. Wherefore, Elohim had called them angels because he rejoiced over them greatly. But after this, they no longer kept his commandment, nor held by the promise he had made to their fathers, but they relaxed from their fasting and praying, and from the counsel of Yared their father, and they kept on gathering together on top of the mountain to look upon the children of Cain from morning to evening and upon what they did, upon their beautiful dresses and ornaments. Then the children of Cain looked up from below and saw the children of Seth standing in troops on the top of the mountain, and they called to them to come down to them. That comes from chapter 20 of the book. I trust you read the whole of what has just been offered and not just the highlighted part. I had considered taking the marker out on the entire passage and probably would have gotten away with it without apologies as well and still may consider the deed before turning in my final draft. Those two verses do seem to sum it up nicely though. And what do we see happening? The sons of Cain gathered around the holy mountain, which is the same thing as saying Mount Zion ultimately. Hasatan taught the beautiful techniques, uh, though here he possessed somebody named Ganan to go about doing it, which is also very interesting. They banged upon drums, blew horns, built racetracks for the horses, and probably casinos, all within view of Zion. I am showing you this so that you can know the end from the beginning and understand the tension when Zosimus enters a very similar land skipping ahead a dozen or so verses. And when they looked at the daughters of Cain, at their beautiful figures, and at their hands and feet dyed with color, and tattooed and ornaments on their faces, the fire of sin was kindled in them. Then Satan made them look most beautiful before the sons of Seth, as he also made the sons of Seth appear of the fairest in the eyes of the daughters of Cain, so that the daughters of Cain lusted after the sons of Seth like ravenous beasts. And the sons of Seth after the daughters of Cain, until they committed abomination with them. But after they had thus fallen into this defilement, they returned by the way they had come and tried to ascend the holy mountain, but they could not. Because the stones of that holy mountain were a fire flashing before them, by reason of which they could not go up again. I think that is so haunting, that, that idea that they didn't realize what they 
had done or the the seriousness of their crime until they tried to go back up the holy mountain and found that they could not they did not guard the commands and here's the tragic part of the the tale the sons of seth were no longer able to ascend to the heights of the mountain after they had been seduced by the sons of cain afterwards calling themselves the son of elohim would be impotent and without meaning that title had been stripped from them. It was like that with the Watchers as well. Enoch tells us the angelic beings were no longer capable of looking up and beholding the heavens after their transgression. Come to think of it, it is our story at present. This is what Yahushua HaMashiach had to say about our own origin story. I'm going to quote the, the heck out of this past, this verse. I love it to death. Uh, that comes from the book of the Nazarim, chapter 15. I do not teach abstinence from evil for some purpose, purposeless end, but to bring to men the recognition of their heritage. All men were once sons of Elohim, but they became bastards of Elohim without heritage. I come to men so that they may reinherit and become true sons of Elohim. And so by now, you should be able to recognize a consistent theme in all of this. Many of the sons of Elohim forsook their calling as sons of Elohim, and in fact, only Methuselah and Noah remained of their numbers at the advent of the floodwaters. I can only surmise Yahuwah offered us the morality tale as a worldly reminder of what every single one of us lost in a pre-existent heavenly state. Uh, and I'm referring to, of course, this, this Watcher's tale and the, the, the sons of Elohim that it, it, that was ultimately what we did up in heaven at one time. That's our story. We transgress it. We were cast out like Adam and Eve. I, I love how I'm always getting ahead of myself uh, by like a single sentence. See, this is how my mind thinks. We were sons of Elohim, but became bastard children according to our own transgressions. Our entire purpose on this earth is to be redeemed of the evil. We chose through the atoning sacrifice of our high priest, Yehusha HaMashiach, and obedience to his father's commands. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Revelation 14, 12. Look it up if you don't believe me. I think I have pretty much covered the basics. Moving forward, the rest of the Zosimus narrative should begin to make a whole lot more sense now, continuing. This is from chapter six. And by the way, uh, I do have the whole book on my website if anybody wants to read it for themselves. And the man of Elohim cried out saying, woe is me that the story of Adam is summed up in me. For Satan deceived him through Chua. And this man by his flattery desires to make me a liar while he is here. Take me away from hence for I shall flee from the place. For behold, he wishes to sow in me seeds of the world of vanity. And all the multitude and the elders rose up against me and said, Depart from us, man. We know not whence thou art come to us. So keep in mind, this is after the angels have come and said, This guy's legit. He's okay. We brought him here. They're, they're, they are guarding the commands. They're mortals and they love it. They like their life in the hidden wilderness. They do not want to go to the outer darkness, our version of reality. They don't want to be cast into the matrix. And they know what they need to do. Guard the commands. Don't even play with fire. And they think this guy is the tempter coming in. See what I mean? The mortals of the hidden wilderness knew they could fall from grace through Satan's temptation. And they were on to Sozimus as a possible stand-in for the deceiver. By the way, I'm skimming over this text to deliver the highlighted sections. 
Zosimus convinces the locals that he was sent there by Yahuwah to learn of their ways, which sets just about everyone at ease. And then we learn of their origin story. Chapter 7. And they rejoice with great joy, and taking up tables of stone, they wrote on them with their nails thus, Hear ye, sons of men, hear ye us, who are become blessed, that we also are of you. For when the prophet Yermiyahu proclaimed that the city of Yerushalayim should be delivered into the hands of the destroyers, he rent his garments and put sackcloth upon his loins and sprinkled dust upon his head and took earth upon his bed and told all the people to turn from their wicked way. And our father, Rekav, the son of Yehunadav, heard him and said to us, Ye sons and daughters of Rekav, hearken to your father and put off your garments from your body and drink no vessel of wine and eat no bread from the fire and drink not strong drink, not strong drink and honey until Yahuwah hear your entreaty. And we said, all that he has commanded us, we shall do and hearken. So we cast away our clothing from our bodies and we ate no bread from the fire and drank no vessel of wine nor honey nor strong drink. And we lamented with a great lamentation and besought Yahuwah. And he heard our prayer and turned away his anger from the city of Yerushalayim. And there came to the city of Yerushalayim mercy from Yahuwah. And he pitied its people and turned away his deadly anger. The narrative of Zosimus chapter 7, or at least a section of 7. And it says, of course, right there, they were followers of Yermiyahu. I about fell out of my seat when I read that. How about you? Did you read the paper I wrote on the subject? I will assume so. But if not, here is a link. Or I could just reroute you to the, um, that would be, which one was it? Oh, the, um, the cities of the Millennial Kingdom. When I talked about the, uh, the, uh, the Stone of Scone and the, the people of the, um, Ugh, not the people, the commandment, whatever. I'll get to it. Oh, it's in the back of my head. The people of the covenant, the Britons, think it over and then get back to me. I have already given the spiel about how Yermiyahu was tasked by Yahuwah to uproot the kings of Yehuda and then plant them elsewhere. In canonical scripture, we are never told where Yermiyahu ended up after traveling with Baruch to Mitraim. Spain initially, but then eventually Britain and Ireland. That's my conclusion at any rate. And it is possible that Yermiahu did die in, in Mitraim. I would say he went back there and died. I don't really know. I think he died in Ireland, a peaceful life. That Yehudan princess T. Tefi was in his care, as was the Stone of Scone and probably the Yehuda royal scepter. If you want to know the full story, I am of the mind to suspect it was all a setup for a thousand-year reign of Messiah. The United Kingdom was the epicenter of the Millennial Kingdom, um, as far as my research has gone, though that might change in time as I look at more stuff, but I feel like there was something happening there. The UK was a happening place, not in the 1960s, but in the... Um, uh, swinging London in the, in the Millennial Kingdom. Well, keep reading then, because my investigative hunch did not go unrewarded. This comes from chapter 9. Then the king was enraged and set us in prison. And they're, of course, re, uh, they're still telling the story about when they were uh, back in Yerushalayim with uh, Jeremiah. Then the king was enraged and set us in prison, and we passed that night there. And behold, a light shone in the building. And an angel uncovered the prison and laid hold of the crowns of our heads. 
and took us out of the prison and set us beside the water of the river and said to us, Whithersoever the water goes, go ye also. And we traveled with the water and with the angel. When therefore he had brought us to this place, the river was dried up and the water was swallowed up by the abyss. And he made a wall round this country. That would be the mist wall. And I, I didn't mention it, but it actually, at another part of the book, it said that this wall went all the way down to the abyss. It went all the way down, like into, like not even Sheol could get in. Interesting. And there came a, there came a wall of cloud and shadowed above the water. And he did not scatter us over all the earth, but gave to us this country. What do you suppose the, the crown, crowns of their heads were that the angel grabbed? I'm kind of thinking the pineal gland. I think that's an interesting little reference there. Did you catch all of that? The king of Yerushalayim threw them in prison for refusing to dishonor Yahuwah. Yirmiyahu did his fair share of prison time too. When King uh, Zedekiah finally retrieved the prophet from the dungeon, he asked him privately, is there any word from Yahuwah? In which the prophet answered, yes, you will be handed over to the king of Babylon. Sucks to be him. And anyways, an angel of Yahuwah freed these people from prison, according to their testimony, bringing them safely to the hidden wilderness. If this is correct, and my other inkling regarding the planting of Yashrael on a western isle is also correct, then the thousand-year reign was the outlook for both parties. Well, let's keep reading. Chapter 10, it looks like. Hear ye sons of men, hear the way of life of the blessed. For Elohim placed us in this land, for we are holy, but not immortal. So there it is. They're just, they're mortal people. They, they will live and die. For the earth produces most fragrant fruits, and out of the trunks of the trees comes water sweeter than honey, and these are our food and drink. We are also praying night and day, and this is all our occupation. Here, ye sons of men, with us there is no vine, nor plowed field, nor works of wood or iron, nor have we any house or building, nor fire, nor sword, nor iron wrought, nor unwrought, nor silver, nor gold, nor air too heavy or too keen. Neither do any of us take to themselves wives, except for so long as to beget two children. And after they have produced two children, they withdraw from each other and continue in chastity, not knowing that there were ever in the intercourse of marriage, but being in virginity as from the beginning, and the one child remains for marriage and the other for virginity. The narratives of Zosimos chapter 9, pausing already. Now, I know that right that right there is going to crawl up some people's spine, like the wrong way. They're going to like, what? What? There's, they're, they're mortals and they're not having sex. If, if you go back and read Edemic literature, it was the same way. Like Adam and Shua, according According to these books, wouldn't know each other for decades. And then they would come together for the purpose of having a child. They would have that child and then they would be, you know, separated again. And I I think what's been really helpful in all of this is that it like is reading uh I think it was a couple weeks ago when I went through the marriage of Ruakov and showing that there the the purpose, of course, of intercourse has met its end once we become immortals like there's no more reason to do that but a man and a woman are still can be stitched together you know that the the marriage of Ruakov, they can be united together and that's something that's really difficult for 
um, a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And um, but I, I think it's a it's a reassuring thought. It's it's not saying that they were like the man and the wife here are completely strange to each other. They were they would have been united together in in very strong ways. You know, their their souls would be their their very ruach would be stitched together. Um, and that's anyways enough on that. Pausing already, but it is only to remind you that the sons of Seth lived the exact same way, as I just mentioned. They were just as, as assuredly not immortal, but lived as though they were already. There was no need to plant nor harvest, and the building of houses was deemed unnecessary. What I have to say next will not be a popular opinion. See, I'm always getting ahead of myself. It's one of the sins of this channel. So forgive me, I will repeat myself. What I have to say next will not be a popular opinion among some of my readers. But sexual intercourse was also deemed pointless, except for the beginning of children. That is so lost in our culture today. I mean, it's it's like, you know, sex sells, right? I mean, can't go to the just everywhere. Uh, Adam and Shua with decades between moments of sexual intimacy. Amazing. Amazing. I'm ahead of myself. According to the gossip columns, it doesn't mean that Ruokoth were not bound to one another. Also, you've already read about the daughters of Cain situation and how after one look at them. The sons of Seth discovered their hormones and went raving, hopping mad. Unfortunately, I neglected to sample the day-to-day -day routine for the Sethites of the mountain before that happened. When I do, you will see that Zosimus might as well be describing the, the original inhabitants of the mountain of worship, or Zion. Then Seth stood before the body of his father Adam and of his mother Chua and prayed night and day, and asked for mercy towards himself and his children, and that when he had some difficulty dealing with the child, he would give him counsel. But Seth and his children did not like earthly work, but gave themselves to heavenly things, for they had no other thought than praises, doxologies, and psalms unto Elohim. Therefore did they at all times hear the voices of angels, praising and glorifying Elohim from within the garden, or when they were sent by Elohim on an errand, or when they were going up to heaven. Seth and his children dwelt on the mountain below the garden. They sowed not, neither did they reap. They wrought no food for the body, nor even wheat, but only offerings. They ate of the fruits of trees well-flavored that grew on the mountain where they dwelt. Then Seth often fasted even forty days, as did also his eldest children. For the family of Seth smelled the, the smell of the trees in the garden when the wind blew that way. They were happy, innocent, without sudden fear. There was no jealousy, no evil action, no hatred among them. There was no animal passion. From no mouth among them went forth either foul words or curse, neither evil counsel nor fraud. For the men of that time never swore. But under hard circumstances, when men must swear, they swore by the blood of Abel the just. But they constrained their children and their women every day in the cave to fast and pray and to worship the Most High Elohim. They blessed themselves in the body of their father Adam and anointed themselves with it. And they did so until the end of Seth drew near. That comes from Second Adam and Shua, chapter 11. Oh, so, yeah, chapter 11. Did you pick up on the part regarding the 40 days fast? Sometimes I don't highlight these things just to see if you're paying attention. You will, of course, recall that Zosimus was a dedicated faster for the matter of 40 years. That will seem extreme and unnecessary to some, but then how many centuries do you figure Seth managed it? And anyways, I hope you're satisfied concerning the, the mountain of worship lifestyle. 
it isn't always easy figuring out where I should take the scissors to these pages, as there are descriptions replete throughout the book of Second Adam and Achua, uh, all describing what their life was like. But that is okay, as I think you're beginning to gain your peripheral vision. Keep a lookout for that 40 number in the passage ahead. Continuing. And there is no... Uh, this. So this is uh, chapter 11 now of Zosimus. And there is no count of time, neither weeks, nor months, nor years, for all our day is one day. Now, this is interesting, um, considering that uh, there's no moon there. There's no course of the moon or the sun. So how would you know what a day is? When would you know when the feast days are? In our caves lie the leaves of trees, and this is our couch under the trees. But we are not naked of body, as ye wrongly imagine, for we have the garment of immortality and are not ashamed of each other. At the sixth hour of every day we eat, for the fruit of the tree falls off itself at the sixth hour, and we eat and drink our fill, and again the water sinks into its place. We also know you who are there in the world, and who are in sins, and your works. For every day the angels of Yahuwah come and tell them to us, and the number of your years. But we pray for you to Yahuwah, because we also are of you, and of your race, except that Elohim has chosen us, and has set us in this place without sin. And the angels of Elohim dwell with us every day, and tell us all things concerning you. And we rejoice with the angels over the works of the just. But over the works of sinners we mourn and lament, praying to Yahuwah that he may cease from his anger and spare your offenses. But when the time of the forty days comes, all the trees cease from their fruits, and the manna that he gave to our fathers rains down from heaven. That really excited me when I read that. And the manna is sweeter than honey. Thus we know that the season of the year is changed. But when the time of the holy Passover comes, then again, the trees put forth fragrant fruits, and thus we know that it is the beginning of the year. It makes total sense to me that there would be no measure of time, seeing as how the circuit of the sun and the moon are unaccounted for in the furthest corners of our realm. I'm assuming then that every day would be a perpetual Sabbath rest. That's a kingdom signpost. By no means are the feasts unaccounted for, though. An example is given. Yahuwah makes the Passover known with the changing of fruits. And then look at the quip about the manna raining down from heaven. The food of angels was delivered to the Exodus generation. But it is also another description of the thousand-year reign. Why I have already come to that conclusion has already been shown to you in my uh, Kings and Priests of the Thousand-Year Reign homework assignment. I'm not repeating it here. This time I will make you seek it out for yourself. Here is a reminder, though, if you need a refresher. Anyone who eats manna in the manner described needn't find a toilet to relieve themselves. There was no poop in the Millennial Kingdom. Continuing without interruption from chapter 13. We also know that ta the time of our end, for we have no torment nor disease, nor pain in our bodies. That sounds nice. Nor exhaustion nor weakness, but shalom and great patience and love. For our soul is not troubled by the angels to go forth. For the angels rejoice when they receive our souls, and the souls also rejoice when the angels, when they behold them. As a bride receives the bridegroom, so our soul receives the announcement of the holy angels, saying nothing more than only this, Yahuwah calls thee. Then the, then, uh, the sit uh, quits the body, uh, the sent angel, or yeah, quits the body and goes to the angel. 
And the angels, seeing the soul coming forth spotless, rejoice, and spreading out their robes, receive it. Then the angels call it blessed, saying, Blessed art then, O soul, because the will of Yahuwah is fulfilled in thee. The time of our life is this. If one quits the body in his youth, the days of his age here are 360 years. And he that quits the body in old age, the days of his life here are 688 years. And the day of our completion is made known to us by the angels. And when the angels of Elohim come to take us, we go with them and the elders, seeing the angels, gather together all the people, and we depart together with the angels, singing psalms, until the angels arrive at the place of our abode. And because we have no tools, the angels of Elohim themselves make the grave for our body. And thus, he that is called by Elohim goes down, and all salute him from small to great, sending him on his way and bidding him farewell. Then the soul quits the body and the angel receives it, but we see the shape of the soul as a shape of light, perfect in all the body apart from the distinction of male and female. Then the angels, taking it up, sing a song and hymn, making melody to Elohim, and again other troops of angels come in haste to meet them, saluting the soul that is coming and entering into the firmaments. It's interesting, it's plural there, firmaments. Just like we saw with the, uh, the vision of Paul, it was also... Uh, plural firmaments. And when it has come to the place where it is to worship Elohim, the son of Elohim himself, together with the angels, receives the soul of the Blessed One and bears it to the undefiled Father of the ages. And again, when the angels sing above, we, we being below listen to them. And again, we sing and they listen in heaven above. And thus between us and the angels, there arises a giving of praise and hymns. But when the soul of the Blessed One falling upon its face worships Yahuwah, then we also falling down worship Yahuwah in that same hour. And when Yahuwah raises it up, then we also arise. And when it goes to its appointed place, we also go into the church, fulfilling the Eucharist of Adonai. The narrative is Osimus 13 through uh, 15. Everything that was just described not only matches passages, uh, uh, not only matches passages, what I could dig up for you regarding Sephite worship, and that includes the funeral procession. It lines up with the on earth as it is in heaven mentality that we've so often heard about. The people of the hidden wilderness pause to listen to the angels in worship and vice versa. But then a length of years is restored, 360 years for the youth and 688 for an elder. I'm assuming their holy vegetarian diets have something to do with it, not to mention the lack of GMOs and chemtrailing. The manna is sure to pack on a few years to the love handles as well. I can't emphasize this enough. The hidden wilderness is reserved for those who desire to live a holy, set-apart life for Yahuwah and yet missed out on the failed experiment that was the mountain of worship. Many people will tell me they want more than anything to escape the cities of Cain and discover the unknown continent, though I am not the judge of their sincerity. Thank you all for that. Reading passages such as this one, it is up to you to investigate the recesses of your own heart and ask yourself, if you would be gazing out towards the trumpeting halls of the Canaanites in a New York minute. That, as you know, is the story of the thousand-year reign. Nearly everyone claims they want paradise when his story has repeatedly proven that what they really desire is rebellion. Oh, and one more thing. I had named this section The Hidden Wilderness and Satan. There were a few other titles toyed with, but the statement being made seemed to be the best fit. 
particularly since I was referring to Hasatan's inability to infiltrate the Land of Promise. Do you recall how I had started out saying the land was not disclosed for the general public until after Satan was locked up, and that furthermore, the land would be concealed again once he was released? Many of you will agree that we're inhabiting the Age of Deception now. For whatever reason, Satan is giving free reign, is giving, uh, giving or given free reign to wage a war of lies, and we find ourselves caught up in the middle of it. Well, well then, you'll never guess what happened to Zosimus after his return home. So this is coming from uh, chapter 20 and 21. Saying these things, the devil departed from me. And after, so uh, he, he's, he's back home now. Okay, he's back home to his apartment, his cave. And he just got into a, a scuff with the devil. With, uh, with Hasatan. Anyway, starting again. Saying these things, the devil departed from me, and after eight days, he brought with him 1,360 demons and dragged me from the cave as I prayed, and they beat me, tossing me about between them for 40 days. And after the 40 days, the devil lamented before me and said, Woe is me that through one man I have lost the world, for he has vanquished me by his prayer. And he began to run from me, but I, laying hold of him, stayed him and said, Thou shalt not run away and flee from me until thou swear to me never again to tempt man. And lamenting with great and violent lamentation, he swore to me by the firmament of heaven, So long as thy dwelling is here, and after thee, I will not come upon this place. Then I let him go, sending him and the demons with him into eternal fire. Then the angel came who had accompanied me with me at the table and led me into my cave with great glory. After this, I lived 36 years and communicated the way of life of the blessed to the fathers in the desert. But the devil wept because of the tables of the life of the blessed, saying, If this gets abroad in the world, I shall be mocked. And these will remain without sin, and I alone in folly. And after the completion of the thirty-six years, the angels of Elohim came to me as to the blessed. Satan beat the hell out of him in his rage is what happened. Don't get me wrong, it ended well for Zosimus. It's just that Satan, having heard now, or ha having heard how Zosimus had visited the hidden wilderness, and then bringing his demons along for a smackdown didn't go unnoticed. I think there is something to that. In saying he didn't want the hidden wilderness to spread abroad in the world because the people would, would, would remain without sin, Satan seems to be gazing at a forward epoch in his story. The entire scene may indeed be symbolic for the short season. The beatdown lasted for 40 days probably in retribution to the 40 years of evading his temptations, and by a total of 1,360 demons. Why that number? Seems specific. Zosimus then lived for an additional 36 years, which lines up with the number of demons, the 36 and 1360. Are we being told the length of the short season? Deduct 1,000 for the thousand-year reign, and we are left with 360. But then there is something to the 40 number, which might make 400 in total. I don't really know. Numbers are being thrown at us and not without reason. While it is obvious that Zosimus bound Satan and his demons in eternal fire rather than disposing of him for good, 
uh, as even the text claims, insists or insists that he remained around, the image is probably intended. Okay, I, I needed to rewrite that a little bit better. It's obvious that Satan was not thrown in eternal fire. All right. Don't quote me on this, but I'm getting the feeling that we were just given further clues regarding the short season. All right. So that's all I'm going to cover on this tonight. Now, I had a second part to this presentation. If you turn to page uh, 76, it's called The Mountain of Yahuwah from the Paleo-Hebrew. And uh, I was going to, I've been working with uh, Miss Pamela. I think she's still in the room. And uh, I was going to uh, go through her interpretations of the Paleo-Hebrew from the Psalms and showing uh, the hidden wilderness, the mountain of Yahuwah, how it's all throughout there. And today I was I was meeting with Pamela and we were talking about, I think it's Psalm 91. And uh, and she had given me a short uh, interpretation uh, from it, not the whole thing, which was marvelous. It was magnificent. And then she started uh, talking more about the translation that I hadn't seen yet. And I'm just like, like what in the world? I mean, it was just, it was shocking, what she was showing, I don't even want to give, well, I'll give some of it away. Uh, it, it appears like that the, the mountain of Yahuwah, uh, is, uh, it, it flies. It, it, it could be moved from one location to another. All right. And I, and I'm reading this, I'm going, okay, I need to add this to the presentation. So I'm not going to shortchange you tonight. I'm going to rework that in. And one of the reasons being is that when you read Edemic literature, what was going on in the mountain of worship? They're in the mountain of the Seth and his children are in the mountain of worship and they're looking up and the garden of Eden, the mountain of Yahuwah is above them. Okay, they're already on the top of the mountain. They can look up to the heavens and it's above them. They can't get to it. And when I heard that, I'm like, that takes us right back to Edemic literature. That that gar that Eden was lifted up and it was and it was moved somewhere. So talking about more about that in uh you guys will have to hold your horses on that for a few weeks, I think, and then I'll have that again. So moving on to the second part of our nights. Let me stop to get my breath and drink a coffee. I uh, hope you guys are all doing well. Looks like a lot of people are here tonight. Hope you guys enjoyed that. 